Well, good morning. The sermon title, I need to apply to myself, Strengthened in Christ. Um, But that's what he does. Well, let's pray as we get into the word this morning. Father in heaven, we do rejoice that you have revealed yourself through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that through men guided by the Holy Spirit, you have penned what we have now as your word. And so we ask that you would illumine us by your Holy Spirit, that he would teach us um, through the word today, that he would apply all the benefits of Christ today to us and that we would be built up in the faith and that you would do a work through us as you promised to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Got a little frog in my throat, so bear with me this morning. Um, came to my attention this, this last week, I was talking to Eric Basil, and I have mentioned uh, multiple times something called the Vine Project. Um, and I just want to give a little bit of information on that. Um, the session, the elders of Trinity began looking at um, casting vision for this particular church body going forward. And so a lot of research has been done, but we have taken to a book that's uh, called The Vine Project, and it is written by Colin Marshall and Tony Payne. They're two Aussie uh, Anglican pastors that simply take the Word of God and says, what does God say the church is supposed to do? What is its mission, and what is, its, what is the vision for the church? And so it uses Scripture to guide us. Now, part of that process that we're going through is an exercise where we're taking 10 individuals from amongst this congregation, and we are going through the hard work of every single piece, every single scripture that we need to. And at the end of that process, which it is a process, we'll come back to the session, we'll make those recommendations for how we will do things uh, a bit differently, more biblically going forward. So I don't want you to be confused when I use that It's very clear in my mind. I know it's very confusing maybe to you. But I want to assure you that it's based on Scripture. So with that, cast aside, there'll be more about that when we have our congregational meeting. Um, Since the beginning of time, or I should say since the fall or rebellion, Steve mentioned that in his prayer this morning, followers of Christ, of God. Followers of Christ have always been the minority. That's an important theme that goes all throughout Scripture because God in His grace wants us to know that even though the church, the people of God, may be small in number, may be the minority, that His strength, His grace is sufficient abundantly so. And so when we look at things in the world, we tend to want to, as Paul says in the scriptures, he did not give us a spirit of timidity or of fear or of cowardness. We don't want to look at the world that way just because we're not many in number. We're few in number. But he wants us to know, wants Timothy to know through this passage today that we are strengthened We have the power of the Holy Spirit within us to do the work of God, and that is all of grace. 
So there is example upon example throughout the Scriptures. I, you can turn to the book of Judges. And you can look there in chapter 7 and you have Gideon who is called by God to be raised up to be a judge so that he can show compassion on a rebellious people, the nation of Israel. And so he's told to gather together an army to go against the Midianites. The Midianites have some 135,000 soldiers. And all Gideon is able to muster is 32,000. That's a 4 to 1 ratio. And so God tells Gideon, Gideon's probably thinking, we're few in number, we're going to get killed. God tells Gideon, got too many. Got too many. Can you imagine Gideon? What are you talking about? We've got too many. He says, tell all of them that are afraid to go home. And Gideon says the word. And 22,000 go home. Now he's down to 10. Gideon's going, these numbers keep getting bigger and bigger against us. God says, there's still too many for me to be glorified. And so he says, I want you to take them by this body of water and I want them to drink. And all who cup and drink, those are to be the ones that you have. Now here's what's interesting, and I want to pull, point out this little tidbit in this story. If you gather an army, they're, they're going to hold their sword. Most of them didn't have a sheath. So the rest of the story of Gideon and Judges, they don't go to the battle with the swords. They leave them at home. They take trumpets and they take clay jars with torches, with candles in it. And they go and they break open the clay vessels and the light shines and they blow the trumpet blast and the Midianites destroy each other. Now I want you to see the illustration that's coming through this. The trumpet is the gospel, the proclamation of the word that goes out. The light in the jars is the light of the gospel. That destroys evil and it saves a people, in this case, Israel. We've always been the minority. We have never been the majority. The Reformation, historians say you probably have somewhere between 8 and 12% of the population were actually devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. That's not many. In the last 20 years, the church in North America has seen a decrease There's a book that's out now that talks about the de-churched. Over 60 million people in North America that attended at least one Sunday per month have left the church. The church looks in decline. We're not to wring our hands. We are not to worry. We are not to be faint of heart. We have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where Paul begins to go with this message. He begins by telling Timothy, You then, my child. He will use this phrase repeatedly throughout his uh, pastoral epistles. 
you then, or but now, you. Therefore, you. It's the same Greek words, it's just translated a little bit differently. But the whole idea of this is Paul is trying to form a contrast between what has been said before and where he's going. And this whole idea of being a minority, but being strengthened, is coming through in this contrast. He says, you then. Remember what I just said back in verses 8 through 14 in chapter 1. That you've been saved by God. That you've been called with a holy calling. That it's not of works. It's all of grace alone. I've given you Christ who has abolished death and given immortality to you through faith in Him. That's the good news of the gospel. That's where you are. You are united to Christ there, Timothy. That's the positive side of this contrast. The negative side is the closing of chapter 1 that says, all abandoned me. Paul's in the maritime prison, chained, carved out of the rock with just a hole in the ceiling, cold and damp. But is he wringing his hands? Is he worried about those who are fleeing the church and abandoning the church? No. He tells Timothy, I don't want you to be fearful. I don't want you to have a cowardice attitude. I want you to know this. Be strengthened in the grace of Christ Jesus. Now this is the same grace that saves But it's a different grace. Different in what it does. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That saves us. Not of works that anyone should boast. But then there is, as John in his gospel, verse 16 says, that of his fullness we have received grace upon grace. So we come to faith through grace that saves us. We would call that justification. But then there is grace that is given to us ongoing for what we call sanctification. Our growth, our maturity in Christ. Maturing as a disciple of Christ. That's all of grace too. It's all of grace. And so he wants Timothy to know Timothy. What I'm asking you to do, what God has asked from me, that I now pass this baton on to you and ask of you to do for the Lord, you're already going to be strengthened by His grace. He's going to give you everything you need. Look, the whole of Scripture, brothers and sisters, should be so encouraging to us because it tells us repeatedly that He gives us everything that we need before he puts us into service. Gideon in that battle in Judges, he had taken care of everything beforehand. And he does so repeatedly. And so we have the grace. John Stott talks about what he would have said to Timothy. Never mind what people may say, thinking uh, what they may say, be saying, what they may be thinking, and what they may be doing. Never mind how weak or how shy or how fearful you may be. Timothy, be strong. That's the encouragement that is given. This 
inward strength is what it is. It's the strength of the Spirit that's within. It's not talking about, you need to go pump iron, Timothy. You know, you need to go get buffed. Because if you're strong enough physically, then you can get through this. It's not the case. We need to be strengthened within by the Holy Spirit, the presence. And so that strength that we get from this grace is going to be manifested through the three illustrations that come later in this passage. That of the soldier, that of the athlete, and that of the farmer. The soldier is devoted. The athlete is diligent. And the farmer, excuse me, the athlete is disciplined and the farmer is diligent. So those are three attributes that are true of a disciple of Christ that are gifts given to us by that grace. We will be devoted. We will be disciplined. And we will be diligent. We'll persevere in the faith. What God has started, He is sure to complete in Christ Jesus. So this grace that comes saves us from sin, but it also gives us the grace for service. We're saved from sin. We're saved to good works, to righteousness, to holiness. And the grace upon grace works for both. Grace for salvation, grace for service. We're not meant to be bystanders once we're saved. We're not meant to be an audience to sit back and watch what God's doing. We're meant to be like soldiers, like athletes, like farmers, day after day doing the work that they're called to do. Ephesians chapter 2 is so rich in this metaphor that we're talking about, about being strengthened by the grace of God. Because we were once apart from God because of sin and trespasses. But by grace we're saved through faith. But then he closes in verse 10, talking about the good works that we're to walk in that he has ordained before the foundation of the world. How do we do that? We do it by grace. So Timothy was supposed to be, um, uh, supposed to remember that he is strengthened by the grace that is in Christ, Christ Jesus. And then he goes on into verse 2 and says, the things that you've heard from me, everything that I've just talked about, the grace upon grace, for salvation and for service. Those things you've heard to me in the, in the witness of many people, you need to entrust them to faithful men. Now he's speaking specifically here about passing it on to elders, to pastors, and that. But the application, the principle, applies to all men and women within the church. This is where we get the idea of apostolic succession. Apostolic succession. You've heard that term and you go, that's a bad term. It is if you think of it in terms of Roman Catholicism. Because they would say that God chose the apostles. And Peter was the first pope. And then every pope that's come down has been apostolic succession. That's not what apostolic succession is. It is the passing on of the teaching of the apostles from one generation to another, to another, to another. And so 
you probably would be better off thinking as the first was apostolic succession. Paul received the gospel from Jesus on the Damascus Road. He then did his work. He says at the end of this book that I have fought the good fight, I've run the race, and I've kept the faith. And so now he is taking that baton and he's passing it to Timothy. This is apostolic succession. You need to take this gospel that I received from Jesus. You need to guard it. You need to protect it. You need to proclaim it. But it's yours now. You're entrusted with it. That has the idea of stewardship. It's yours to take care of day in and day out. And then you're to pass it on to faithful men and women, and they carry it on. So we would think more in terms of gospel succession than apostolic succession. But that's where this comes from, this term comes from. And so you need to trust it to faithful people. That's the race that we run. We are to take that baton when it comes our time. And then Paul comes back and he says, you need to share in suffering. I haven't forgotten what I told you in chapter 1. Share with me in suffering for the gospel. You know, sometimes we hear somebody explaining something to us or we're reading that and we read that one little part. We go, "Mm, I don't like that very much. And you go on a little bit further. And then in their wisdom, they come back around and go, you remember that suffering part that I talked about? This is where it applies. So Paul brings it back up to Timothy again. Share in suffering as a good soldier. And this is where he gets into, let me, let me talk to you, Timothy, in a way that you can understand. Because they lived in a time, we do as well, where every country in the world had soldiers. They had armies. They looked to conquer physically, through war, to take over land, to take over goods, to take over peoples. We look to conquer, as Christian soldiers, sin and death, and gather a people for the Lord. So he says, share with me like a soldier. Now, soldiers are devoted. That is the characteristic, the attribute that Paul wants Timothy to see. That the Christian disciple, the follower of Christ, will have devotion. But they will also suffer. Think a moment with me about soldiers today. And it's the same principle that it was back then. They were devoted to a cause and to a person to country and they were willing to lay down their lives the very fact that they would go to combat that they would go to battle they would go to war says they're willing to put their lives on the line that's devotion that is devotion and so they loved their commander they would follow him to death and so they were known for their training, for their diligence, for the hardship. Think of that. Today, people will go. I remember I I had mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I performed a wedding of uh, Tyler and his wife, Nicole. Tyler Craven, the Craven family, used to attend Trinity a, a while back. But he joined the Marines. And I knew Tyler from being a little kid playing baseball with my son, Jake. 
Tyler was kind of a scrawny, skinny little kid. And then he joined the Marines. He came back after boot camp. And he was a grown man. I mean, he was already getting bigger, but now he had filled out. It's like, how do you do that? He goes, boy, they, when they say they train you, they train you. They tell you when to get up. They tell you when to go to bed. They tell you what to eat. They tell you how far to run. <laughs> Dylan's over here nodding. He's a Marine too, ex-Marine. He talked about going out on marches. You correct me if I'm wrong. 80 pounds a gear. 80 pounds a gear. I was riding my bike the other day going up a, a 7% grade hill. And I'm thinking it's enough for me just to carry the weight I have just to pedal and get this bike going up the hill. But, but 80 pounds a gear? 120. Okay, even more than that. Look, they, sleeping on the ground, out in the heat, out in the cold, thirsty, hungry, tired, they suffered but willing to lay their lives down. So Paul wants Timothy to see this picture. As you're discipling people, Timothy, I want you to encourage them to be like soldiers, to be devoted to their commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ, to know that He will strengthen them internally so that they can do the service, do the work of ministry. And even in suffering, they'll endure. That's the devotion. Now, this is the first illustration that's given, but each one of these illustrations come with the idea of this is what it's like, but it also presents a reward. And so for the soldier, what is the reward? It says in the last part of verse 4, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. He serves at the pleasure of the commander. But there is a relationship here. He will please the Lord, the soldier of Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ will be pleased with the soldier. We get that from Scripture. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. What does a child want to hear from their father or their mother? They want the praise of their words. Well done, son. Good job, little girl. That fills the heart with such love and such joy that you know it's all worth it. That's the love and the joy that we receive from Jesus Christ. So there is suffering. There is hard work and hardship that the soldier has to um, engage with. And there's a risk. So brothers and sisters, you giving the gospel to someone else, there's a risk. For some places in the world, it will cost you your life. It will get you imprisoned. Here it just might get you shunned. You might lose your job. But there is a reward in it. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well, the next piece that Paul gets into is with the athlete. And the athlete is disciplined. Disciplined in what they do. 
There were two types of games during this period of time. The Romans had their games and the Greeks had their games. But they were all very, very, very different. The Romans were barbaric with their games. Those were the gladiators. Those were the fights to the death. Blood sport. But the Greeks looked to have games of skill, of speed, of endurance. That's where we get the idea of the Olympic Games. But there was rules to be followed for athletes. That's what's said in the text here and it's passed on by Paul in this illustration to Timothy. The rules for the Olympic Games way back at the time of this writing was that you were to demonstrate your skill, your, your speed, your endurance. And it wasn't just, oh, I'm getting up and I'm going to play the games today. It's not like when I was a little kid, hey, let's go play baseball. We lived in a cul-de-sac and we would go out and we'd have our gloves and balls and, and bats and we'd go at it. And then we might play again the next day and then we would wait, wait a week. Now, if you were going to compete in these Olympic games, the Greek games, you were required to compete according to the rules. It said you would go to, into training 10 months before the games. That you would exert yourself, strain, toil, labor in physical exercise, in mental exercise, to prepare you to be at the peak of your ability. Because the games were to glorify Greece. These are the best athletes in the world. They've come together. They've trained for at least 10 months. We see the same thing today. Dallas Cowboys are out in Thousand Oaks training camp. They have off-season programs though now. It's like they train year-round. Every other sport does the same thing. I was reading the other day about basketball players. And they have their training camps that are off-seasons. And they'll talk about basketball players that want to be better shooters, develop their shooting. And after a practice is completely over, they've done all their training, they'll then start shooting. And they'll keep shooting until they get a thousand buckets, thousand baskets. The more you miss, the longer you're there. The more you make, the shorter that time frame. But that is, that takes discipline uncanny discipline day after day Noel Sane was with us a couple of years ago in the summer she had gone to George Mason her parents contacted Gayla and myself said our daughter has an internship with Exos a a facility up in um, Frisco and so she came and she stayed with us she attended as we were over at what we call T2 um, when we were having the repairs and restorations done here She'd get up and she'd run six miles every day. She ran cross country for George Mason University in the summer here in Texas. She was disciplined. She'd get up sometimes 5.30 in the morning, go out and run six miles and come back before the sun was up. That's discipline. Are you disciplined? Are you devoted to Christ? Are you willing to lay down your life for the gospel? To be a disciple, to please the king? Are you disciplined to use the means of grace that are given to us? The Word of God, prayer, 
and the Lord's Supper. All means of grace. Grace upon grace to receive. Grace upon grace to be strengthened to do the work of ministry. Does that speak of you? I pray that it does. And if it doesn't, I pray that this encourages you to get on with the race. To take the baton and do your work and your part. Well, the last one comes, becomes the farmer. The hard-working farmer. This requires diligence. You know, the difference between the soldier and the athlete and the farmer, the farmer doesn't have an audience. The, the, the farmer doesn't have any excitement, the glory of victory of a battle. He has the mundane. He has the routine. He has the ongoing battle with a fallen creation. He deals every day with thorns, with thistles, with rocks, with weeds. It requires diligence. Gayla's got an uncle up in Nebraska that farms there. But her father retired from the insurance industry when he was 50 years old, moved out to East Texas and Athens. And he began farming there. He had done farming when he was a child in Mississippi. It was part of the way that they earned a living. He was a Depression child. Grew up during the Depression. And so, Woody, what he was called, Clifford Woodrow Searcy. Some would say CW, others just called him Woody. But Woody got property there. There was an attorney up here who said, hey, if you'll farm my land, I get an agricultural tax break. Woody goes, got a deal. Exchanged just a little bit of money, and then he took over. He would plant corn, black-eyed peas, tomatoes, watermelons, other fruit, other vegetables, and he was really good at it. He used to just sell it off the property. And then he got a client list. And then the client list turned into selling sometimes to Brookshire stores and things like that. But it was the day-to-day handling of the farming. It was hard work. So I went there one summer to work, picking black-eyed peas when I was in college. Man, the sweat runs off your, you like, no, it's unbelievable. And you're picking, and your hands get tired, they get sore. And then he'd come by and he'd take the tractor out and disc through. He constantly has to disc, get the, keep the weeds down. And he would hit rocks, and then he'd take rocks and he'd throw them on the back of the, of the tractor on this flat area to remove them. But it seemed like they kept multiplying all the time. Had to, de- had to deal with drought. Sometimes it didn't rain. He didn't have irrigation. He had to deal with pests. And sometimes animals. All those things that a farmer might get so depressed. So what is this all for? But the diligent farmer continues and presses on. And it says that his reward, his reward is a first share of the crops. 
remember one summer being going down and they grew watermelons. And the watermelons were so big and so good that he would just cut them in fourths. And we would just eat the heart out of it. And we'd throw away the rest. That's the fruit of his labor. So what is the fruit of the labor for the Christian? When we're diligent and persistent to take the gospel out and try to get people to move just one step to the right. Hey, let's have coffee. You have coffee. You're talking about them and their lives. And you hear about their problems. And you say, can I make a suggestion for you? Why don't we read through this book of the Bible? I think this will be good for you, beneficial for you and the problems that you have. And so you begin to share with them. That's the fruit of diligent labor. The other part is your own personal holiness. Because if you're making disciples, you're being discipled too. You're maturing in the faith as well. So those are the fruits of discipleship. Holiness, personal holiness, and joining in the harvest that Christ is bringing in. Looking at my notes, I think I missed the... um, the reward for the athlete. So let me back up for just a minute. Those athletes, if they competed in games, they would get um, a reward at the end. They would get a wreath that would go around their head. Not a gold medal, not anything else. And the wreath, wreath identified them as that champion of that competition. But it was very telling because the wreath, as soon as it's cut, the evergreen begins to wilt to die and to fade. For the Christian that is disciplined to train, to be a disciple, to share the gospel, receives the crown of righteousness. So we have these three characteristics that are true of the Christian disciple that follows Jesus Christ, that we are strengthened by the grace of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. We will be devoted to Christ, willing to lay down our lives to share the gospel with others, to make disciples. We will be diligent in our own personal holiness and then share the gospel with others. Even at the toil and the cost that we have as an athlete does. And then finally, we will be diligent day after day Thanking the Lord each and every day for the new mercies that we have. Your mercies are new each and every morning. And we take those in. We use the means of grace that we have to be built up and strengthened in the faith to live it out. That's the beauty of what we do here each and every Sunday. We, we come and we sing praises to God. We're called to worship Him. We respond through praises. We, we come to our affirmation of faith where we confess what we believe. And then we hear the word proclaimed. We confess our sins. And then we receive grace upon grace through the Lord's Supper. And then we close with a blessing and benediction. All of that is to just say this, Christian. Be strengthened in the grace of Christ. Go out and show yourself as a devoted soldier for Christ. Go out and be disciplined to be like an athlete and run the race of the gospel that's set before you. 
Go forward each and every day next week. Be diligent to speak the gospel to yourself and to someone else. Carry on the baton so that you can say with, with Paul that I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. May God help you to do that. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this word that is encouraging. And though we may be few in number, we have a great Savior who strengthens us with grace to do the work of service for Him. Would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us through one another and through the grace that is found in Jesus that we might be diligent, devoted, and disciplined disciples to carry out the work of gospel ministry for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.